Now, I think it's kind of a weird practical joke, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know how you guys pulled this off, but how you all agreed to leave the first two rows empty to prank me or something, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but I like it. Um, anyway, I'm like, what's going on here? It's the spray zone, like it's a safety thing. If I hit the letter P a little too hard on one of my words and, you know, it goes out into the, I sometimes see it catch the light, you know, so you're safe. You guys are far enough away. Good. Um, we, I've got a few announcements for us and wanted to remind you about the offering as well before we jump into the sermon today. So we have an opportunity each week when we gather as a church to, uh, to, to give towards the cause of Christ. We have an opportunity to put our resources together and, and put them forward so that we can advance God's mission in this world and the f- small role we get to play in that. Like we get to, God's got this big plan that we all get to come together to help uh, bring about. And, so, and one of the ways we do that is through our generosity. And so I want to say thank you, first of all, for your generosity. Thank you for, for enabling this church to carry out the mission, to, to be a church and to carry out the mission that God has called us to. The, there's a couple ways you can give. There's an offering box out there in the lobby uh, that offering um, items can go in. There's our website, liferoads.org giving. Of course, more, more and more people are moving all their financial stuff to online things. And if you'd like to give that way, that's, that's a great way uh, to give. Or there's even text to give. 84321 is the number you text. And after a little bit of setup, you can just text an amount and it'll, you can automate that in a pretty fancy way. And thanks again for your generosity. Now, uh, we have Life Roads invite cards that we put together that have all the service details, 9.15 and 11 o'clock service. It's got a map. They're really nice looking cards out there in the lobby. So if you'd like to invite someone to join you next time you're here, we've got two rows here right in the front available for your friends uh, to fill up. So we're, you're, um, we want to help you invite people to join you uh, to be at church with you. I want to say a huge thank you for donating candy to Stevens Elementary. You blessed the elementary students for their trunk and treat event, trunk or treat event. Trunk or treat, what is, how does that even work? I know what they're saying, but it's like, give us a treat or we'll throw you in your trunk or something. I'm not sure what the, what the title means there. But anyway, um, so thank you for your generosity. I moved all those boxes of candy out to my wife's minivan to get that out there for the event, and there was a lot of candy, like it was heavy. Uh, so thank you so much for your, your great generosity, uh, not only with your financial giving, but with your uh, sugar giving as well. Thank you for that. Um, we, as you know, there's no kids ministry in here uh, for this service because it's the fifth Sunday of the month. All through this year, on the fifth Sundays, we've had the kids with us in the service. And so um, what that helps our kids, volunteers, take a little break, but it also enables us to be able to have the kids in here with us and for them to see that they're a part of the church now. They're not just the future church, they're a part of the church today as well. There's little treat bags there for your kids. Make sure to grab one of those, each of the kids on the way out. There's some, of course, it's, it's Halloween, it's also Reformation Day, it's uh, All Hallows' Eve is what the church celebrated uh, for many years back in the day, and then they, and All Hallows' Eve was the night before All Saints' Day, which is tomorrow, and that's the day that the church historically remembered those who have gone before us, so the people who have died in the faith and that now make up that great cloud of witnesses that Scripture talks about, and it's the day to remember all, all those who we have lost who are, who are a part of the family of God. But there are treats out there, as I mentioned, and the treats include a free Frosty at Wendy's. And it includes, I think, a free kids' meal at Panda Express. There's, like a, there's some good treats in there. So make sure to pick one of those up 
uh, on your way out. And there are activity pages that go along with the service. So it goes along with the passage of Scripture that we're going to be doing today. If you missed those, feel free to step out and, and grab one of those. They're on that table right there in the back of the auditorium. I think that was all. Oh, the la- final thing I wanted to let you know about was our Alpha uh, session has begun. Alpha is for people who are new to faith who are exploring faith, but they wouldn't maybe necessarily consider themselves a Christian, or someone that's been a Christian for a while, but would benefit from a good introduction to the Christian faith. That's who Alpha is for. It's a very simple format. We meet on Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. We meet together for a meal, first of all, around the tables, and then we watch a a video teaching, really well put together video, and then we discuss it. Simple format. It's a really great time, though, and time to talk about some of life's most important questions together in community around a meal. So if you'd like to be a part of that, you can come talk to me at the end of the service, or you can register on our website, liferoads.org slash alpha. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to be there in just a few moments. I want to catch you up on where we've been in this series. So recap, reminder, previously on Faith in a Time of Unbelief, um, we've been talking about Elijah and Elisha and their mission. We haven't talked about Elisha much yet, but their mission was to restore the worship of the true God. That Israel as a nation was divided literally between ten tribes were one, one nation called Israel, the other two tribes were a separate nation called Judah. And during this time of division, uh, Israel largely went astray. They were led by kings not from David's family. They weren't worshiping the true God in Jerusalem and the temple that was built. They were worshiping pagan gods. And the prominent one, the most prominent one, was this god Baal, this, this evil uh, deity that they worshiped, this pagan um, god that was not a real god. But they worshipped, there was Baal worship. And Elijah's life mission is restore the true, the worship of the true and living God to the nation of Israel. I want everyone to come together to worship the true God. Ahab and Jezebel were the king and queen of Israel. And their goal was to uh, replace the worship of the true God with the worship of Baal. Elijah, his mission, everything's kind of pointing together towards this one moment on the top of this mountain, Mount Carmel, where there's this showdown after three years of drought, showdown between the real God and the false God. And God sends fire down from heaven and consumes this altar. And then he prays for rain and then rain returns. And then Elijah, rather than getting victory, rather than declaring just kind of total victory over the nation and everyone's now worshiping the true God, That didn't happen the way he was hoping it would happen. And Elijah is in despair, which is what we talked about last Sunday. And he's in such despair that he doesn't even want to continue living. He's sitting underneath a tree in the desert and he says, God, I I don't want to live anymore. Please take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And God's response to him was to restore him, to care for him, to love him and and care for him physically, like to give him food and rest but then to also broaden his perspective about what God is doing in the world. That God has plans for him. He is not done with him. And he has plans of, what, of ways that he's going to use Elijah in the future. And then one of the ways that God restores him is by just meeting with him, just being with him. And Elijah gets to have this conversation with God. And God care, cares for him and brings him back into, um, back into his mission. So 1 Kings chapter 19 is where our story uh, continues. That picks up exactly where we left off last Sunday. Right after 
Elijah's time of despair and his conversation with God and God telling him that, hey, I have work for you to do. It's not time for you to leave until I say it's time for you to leave. And he broadens his perspective and helps him see reality and helps him see things from God's perspective. So 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So let's talk about what we just read here. We see God has instructed Elijah to anoint three people in the previous verses. Elisha is one of, the, one of the people. One is the king of Syria, future king of Syria, and the third is a future king of Judah. Go anoint all these people. We're not told if he anointed them or if he didn't anoint the, the two other people, but we're told that he goes and meets with Elisha. And the way he does it is he finds Elisha working in a farmer's field, in his, his field, walks past him and casts his cloak on him and then just continues walking. Now, I don't know how you would respond if someone did that to you. They walk past you, you're like at some public place and someone walks past you and just throws their jacket around your shoulders and then walks away. Like we would be uncomfortable with that, I'm, I'm pretty certain, right? But Elisha knew what this meant. He knew who Elijah was and he, saw, he realized the significance of this moment. That Elijah, this, this cloak represented Elijah's calling. It, your translation might say mantle. And it's this, this kind of this symbolic thing of Elijah's call in his office as the prophet is being thrown onto the shoulders of Elisha. And so Elisha realizes what this means. There's some details that we can pick up from the story that tell us some interesting details about Elisha. Um, they're, they're just, we see him in a field, we see what he does, how he responds. And we see his total commitment. And, and one of the things that we notice about Elisha that makes him a good candidate, I think, to take Elijah's place someday, is that his humble service. He was someone who served humbly. He was working in this agricultural setting, plowing a field, right? Getting the fields ready for planting, I think. I think that's what it means to plow the field. Anyway, not, that didn't grow up on a farm or not even good at gardening, but I think that's what that means, right? Getting it ready to plant, right? Okay. No? You do it at the end? I don't know. Okay. A lot of you don't know either. I'm in good company. But he's doing the, the, the farm labor, right? He's, he's, he's doing the equivalent of driving a tractor today, you know? He's doing, it's not flashy, important work or seemingly important work that he's doing. He's serving in a humble way. And when we look to people like future leaders, humble service is a really good indication of the kind of people that could potentially be trusted to be future leaders, Humble service. And humble service is an important part of following Jesus. Like we serve in a humble way often. Like I get to stand up here and, and, and stand in front of you and teach you. And I, I, I value that. I, I, think, I think it's um, it's something that is an honor every time I get to stand up here and teach you. But I also serve in lots of humble ways. And over the 20 years of ministry that I've been involved in, lots of like little things like raking something or picking something up or, you know, whatever, or, or bringing food to someone that, that needs some food or filling someone's gas tank up that, that, you know, needs gas money, that kind of thing. It's like there's all kinds of humble acts of service that we do that are an important part of just following Jesus. 
And Elisha is, is someone that is willing to serve in a humble fashion. When I first received what I, what I consider my call into ministry in the early days of um, really getting serious about my faith and, and recognizing that God was, God was calling me out to do something. And I didn't know what that meant exactly, but, I, but the way I responded to our college group pastor back when I was, I think I was 21, 22 maybe, was like, hey, I want to help out, whatever, whatever I can do to help out. And I was given the opportunity to paint a kitchen at the church. It's like, you, you can paint this kitchen. That needs to be done if you want to help. And so I was so happy to do that because it was, I knew it was something where I was serving God in this. It's not a flashy way. It's not an upfront way. I didn't anticipate anybody knowing about it. But I got to serve in a humble kind of way. Elisha's serving in a humble way here at the farm. Elijah has to go and seek him out. He has this humble servant's heart. We see that Elisha is willing to serve God immediately. So in addition to this humble service, he's also willing to serve God immediately. He, when, once that mantle, that cloak hits his shoulders, he goes, I know what this means, and I'm leaving now. Like this, he's willing to go and follow Elisha. He knew that, or Elijah, he follows him immediately and leaves behind his old life and goes with Elijah, what prepared Elisha, you think, for this moment? What an interesting thing that, that he just walks past him in his field. He's out there. He's at work. He showed up to his work and throws the cloak on him, and he's like, I quit. I'm out, you know? And he does it in a very permanent way that we'll talk about in a moment. But what prepared him for this moment? Was God working? Did he hear that Elijah was coming? Did he, was there something God had laid on his heart that, like, I've called you for something other than farming? Like, yeah, I've got a plan for you. We don't know. Um, we do know that he was probably wealthy to have 12 yoke of oxen, that's 24 oxen out there in the field that he had the ownership of where he could decide that these oxen were going to be sacrificed. That meant he was probably wealthy. So he had a lot of what our culture tells us should, should make us happy. He's got the money. He's got some you know, place of maybe prominence in his family that he's got these oxen and potentially you know, has some resources available to him. But maybe something was missing and he knew that God was calling him to do something else. But then we see, so in addition to humble service, a willingness to serve God immediately, the third thing we see in Elisha's life that's very interesting is this absolute commitment. Absolute commitment. He, he went all in. He sacrificed all of these oxen, 24 oxen, and then used the yoke that they were attached to to start a fire, and they had a giant sacrifice. They had, Scripture is telling us, essentially a party, right? He said they ate all of these oxen, 24 oxen. They, it says they boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen and gave it to the people. So all the, all the people around got together for a feast, probably a once-in-a-lifetime scale feast, like I know in the ancient times, weddings were a big celebration and people would celebrate on a wedding day unlike any other thing. And so you, you know, potentially have one wedding in your lifetime where the whole village would come together. This is on the scale of something like that, but maybe even bigger to have 24 oxen. Like it's a giant barbecue. Invite all your friends. We're having a party. We're celebrating. And this party, this celebration represented him cutting ties with his past. He's not... Like, well, keep the oxen in case this prophet thing doesn't work out. I don't know how things are going to go when I follow Elijah. Elijah's been on the run. Like, I'm not signing up for some kind of luxury cruise here. This is going to have some challenges, but he's like, I'm done with this. I'm not keeping anything in the reserves. That My past is behind me. 
he's moving forward. We, there's a phrase we use culturally called burn the ships. He's, he burned the ships. And that comes from the story of Cortez and when he, when he arrived in, in Mexico, this conquistador in 1519 with all these soldiers. And he apparently, be, to keep his, his men from ever feeling like they had an escape plan, burned the ships behind him. He's like, we're moving forward. We're not going back the way we came. And this is, maybe we have a new phrase that we can use in a church context. We, we burn the yokes, you know? By the way, don't burn your bridges. That's a different thing, right? We don't, that's not a good thing. Burn the yokes. But he, he has this absolute commitment. He is all in. He throws this once-in-a-lifetime feast for the people around, and he begins to follow Elisha. He, verse 21 says, he returned from following him. Uh, at the end of it says, then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. His life became different from that moment forward. Elisha became Elijah's apprentice. He served him. He helped out. He would probably make meals for him. He would walk with him. He would live life with him. Now we're going to hit the fast forward button to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to skip ahead about 18 years. And there's a few stories that we're going to be skipping over. The story of Naboth's vineyard, if you know that, and the way that Ahab and Jezebel plotted together to steal this man's land and put him to death. And God judges Ahab for that. Ahab eventually dies in battle. Ahab's son becomes king. And this son falls and injures himself um, out of a, like a higher level of a home and falls. And, and as he's recuperating, he's wondering if he's going to survive. And, and God tells him that he's not going to survive. Ahab repents like before he dies, kind of, but then eventually meets his end in, in battle. And then we really don't, we don't hear a lot about Elijah over the next chapters that we're skipping over. For 2 Kings chapter 1, we, we, this is the story of, of Ahab's son that falls um, and wants to know. He calls Elijah to find out if he's going to survive or recover from this injury, and he ends up dying. And then Ahab's family line comes to an end. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 2, again, I think I mentioned 18 years have passed. And this is the moment that Elijah is preparing for his final day on earth. So 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you. Before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. 
And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Elijah's preparing for his final day on earth. And what he does with his final time, like if you, you know, this is one of those questions we ask people, like if you knew that today was, on your, was your last day on earth, how would you spend it? Or if we knew that tomorrow was your last day on earth and you had, you know, time to prepare for it, how would you spend tomorrow? Elijah is going into this day knowing that he's leaving at the end of this day. He is, he's, God is taking him. And I don't know if he knows exactly what that's going to look like, but he has full knowledge that this is his last day on earth. And how he spends it is visiting these locations. He does something like a reverse exodus journey. Like he goes, leaves, sort of retraces the path of the nation of Israel when they were coming into the promised land, including crossing the Jordan, going by Jericho, all these places. And everywhere he goes, he goes with Elisha. And he keeps trying to get rid of Elisha. Like, I've got to go over here, Elisha. Why don't you stay here? And he's like, no, I'm, as the Lord lives and as you live, I'm, I'm going with you. I'm sticking with you. It seems to be that Elijah's challenging Elisha's commitment. Are you, are you really in this with me? Like, are you going to stick this out with me? It's been 18 years. We've been doing this together, but it's like, are you really going to stick with me to the end? And Elijah is, or Elisha's continually staying committed to him. Yes, I am. And then they go to these three locations, and the same conversation happens at these three places. They meet with these characters called the sons of the prophets, at these locations, and they also know that this is Elijah's last day on earth. You are leaving us today. You're going into heaven, like you're going to be taken away. Do you know that? And Elisha is, he's like, yeah, I know. Hush up. You know, be quiet. Like, we're gonna, don't talk about that. And it seems to be that maybe Elijah's in a reflective sort of mood. And maybe Elisha's trying to give him a space. He's kind of thinking through maybe his life and walking in these different places on his final day. And as they get to, oh, let me talk about the schools of the, the sons of the prophet a little bit. Some schools of the prophets or sons of the prophet, they seem to be a collection, almost like a Bible school, seminary type thing, a place of instruction in the people who will be the prophets of Yahweh. So these are people that will continue on the worship of the true God. These are people that would be in opposition to this Baal worship. These are people that likely Elisha has spent time training, or Elijah, excuse me, and then Elisha would maybe continue to, to train them. Someday I will stop mixing them up. Elijah, Elisha, someday. By the end of the series, I hope. Um, but Elijah has been training these people, likely, in, in how to be a prophet of God and how to understand God and his word. And he's visiting these people that he's likely poured some of his life into on the way out, maybe leaving them with parting words. You know, they pull Elisha aside. You know that he's leaving today, right? Yeah, I know. Let's give him some space. They get to the Jordan River. We put so little thought into like how we get across rivers and mountains and things like that in our modern day time. 
but we benefit from people before us, generations before us, the engineers and the people that plotted out the, the, the best way to get across a mountain range or a river, that kind of thing. And, you know, that we, we do our baptisms. I've mentioned this before at Plants Ferry Park, and that's named for a guy that built a ferry to go across the, uh, the, the river at that portion um, of the river out in the valley. So, I mean, if you, if you came up to the Spokane River and you were settling near Spokane or trying to get through Spokane, how am I going to get across this big river, you know? You don't have a lot of options, but this guy built this ferry that would take passengers across. Now we've got these bridges. But in the ancient times, to get across a river was no small feat, right? And they come to the River of Jordan. And Elijah does his very last miracle. He rolls up his cloak and he strikes the waters and they part just like they did for the children of Israel as they walked into the promised land many generations before. And they cross over the river, they go to the other side, and on the other side of the river, Elijah has this conversation with Elisha that goes, hey, what, what do you want me to do for you before I depart? I'm about to leave. What would you like me to do for you? Now, everybody, if you had, you know, this, this is similar. <laughs> like, this is one of those things that, like, like the genie, like a genie offers you one wish, what would you do? If you had one wish from a genie, like we can all think, <laughs> think about that. I don't know that it's exactly the same thing, but... Elijah has done some pretty amazing things. God has worked in Elijah's life in powerful ways, and Elisha is given this opportunity to make a request of him. What would you like me to do for you? And he goes, I want a double portion of your spirit. Elisha says, or Elijah says, if you are here when I leave, then you, you will know that God's given that to you. God's granted that. That's a difficult request. But then they we then we see this powerful display of the power of God, chariots of fire. Horses of fire. Imagination, what was that like? Like what a wild scene to see these chariots of fire and horses of fire that come between Elisha and Elijah. And then Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. And then he departs this earth. He is taken up into heaven and he leaves this life and goes into the next life without having to cross through death. Like that's, he's in very exclusive company there. There's a list with only two names on it of people who have ever gone to heaven without going through, through death first, right? Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and now Elijah. And they both ascend, you know, Enoch was taken away by God. Elijah is taken away by a whirlwind into heaven. You know, we say that like the, the death rate is still hovering right around 100%, right? That everybody at some point will, will leave this life. We, we could actually change that just to, it's like 99.9999. You know, there's some, it's, there's two people that went to heaven without having to pass through death. What a wild thing. Elisha's response to what he sees in this moment is very instructive. He says, my, he calls out, he says, my father, verse 12, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. It would make sense that he's talking about these chariots of fire that he sees, and we'll see that thing show up again in Elisha's life further in the study. But he seems to be talking about Elijah. He calls Elijah the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And it seems to be that the point he is making is there's something about Elijah that makes him distinct and also makes him valuable to the nation of Israel. That having one Elijah is like having a big army with chariots and horses. Like that God, that God blessed the nation of Israel through him, that God made an impact through him, that God even protected Israel in some way because of him. And I think there's something very applicable for that in our own lives. We think about like the way God blesses nations, 
the way God blesses his people, it's largely through the people who are a part of it. And so if you in any way feel uncomfortable or concerned about our country, um, I want to share a quote with you. And it it goes like this from someone that wrote back in the 1800s. He's a pastor named Henry Blunt. He said, Elisha knew what, alas, few believers ever dream of knowing, that the devout and holy followers of God are the support and safeguard of their country. The real strength of our beloved country exists not in her fleets, her armies, her wealth, or even in her institutions, but simply and entirely in the blessings of her God. So if you were concerned about our, our nation, and I know there's all kinds of concerns uh, from any different political angle that you might want to look at it from. Their people are concerned about division and the political climate in our country and um, all, all the things that, that we could be concerned about. One of the best things you can do to address those concerns is to follow Jesus with everything you've got. And that you being a part of this will, ends up actually blessing your country. You are like the chariots and the horses of, of your nation, if you are devoted and giving your life wholly to God and also spreading the gospel and being a part of his mission in this world and praying for revival. Man, pray for revival. Pray that God would, would raise up more and more people all over this nation who will be like those Elijahs, the chariots and the horses of Israel, that we'd be like this, you know, the, 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 these people that bless our nation. God has done it in the past And I am confident that God can do it again. I pray that he will do it again. I know he can. We look back on our history even as a country and we had something called the First Great Awakening where God moved in such a dramatic way that all up through the colonies and the the, East Coast where, where we had states at that time, there were so many people coming to Christ that it was affecting whole towns. It was affecting the level of like, like uh, crimes that were being committed in the, in the country. The second Great Awakening later, another great move of God. We look back even in, our, in, in recent history, almost in my lifetime, during the Jesus People revival in the 1970s and the way that God like, brought so many people who were dropping out of this countercultural movement in the 60s and 70s into the family of God in the way that you know, many of those pastors that came to Christ during that time are, recent, are retiring in recent years. God has worked in powerful and dramatic ways in the past, and he can do it again. Let's pray that he will. And that will bless our nation as more and more people, people's lives are changed in our country. Elijah's life during the last 18 years seems to be relatively quiet compared to the previous years, where he has this dramatic confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then there's, there are a few miracles that happen, like there's some prophecies, there's a, there's a whole thing, encounter between some soldiers and Elijah and fire and things like that um, in chapter 1 of 2 Kings. But, but there's not, his, his mission is, does not seem to be as much on the public stage. He's not having these like big revival meetings on, the, on mountains like he did during the showdown between him and the prophets of Baal. He seems to be more focused on the next generation, on passing his faith and mentoring and teaching Elisha and maybe these sons of the prophets as well. These people will take up his life's work. These people will take up the mantle. They'll be handed the baton. They'll have to run their race and continue the work of turning people's hearts back to the true God. What if Elijah had died under that tree 18 years before? Elijah was under that tree and he says, I don't want to live anymore, God. Take my life. I'm done here. God could have said, okay, your wish is granted. But instead, he gets 18 more years to pour into Elisha's life 
into the schools of the prophets. If he, if he would have left at that point, like so much wisdom and stories of God's faithfulness and lessons learned and the ways that God had taught him things that he needed, that would have gone with him. He had such important work to do. He had to pass that on to the next generation. About 900 years ago, over in uh, medieval England, people began to build amazing churches that we call cathedrals. I think we have a picture of what a cathedral, the inside of one of these cathedrals, European cathedrals, looks like. The stained glass windows, the huge arches, and the way these buildings just rose up into the sky. It's so amazing. Has anyone been to like a European, like an old cathedral in, in Europe? Okay, and then now if you've seen St. John's, anyone seen St. John's Cathedral in Spokane? Should be every hand. Okay. Some of you are playing along and some of you aren't. Fine. Um, that's okay. Um, these cathedrals, you know, St. John's Cathedral took 10 years to build. And it was built, start, I think, 19, late 1920s, finished before World War I, St. John's Cathedral. 10 years is a long time to build something. Right? That's, a, that's a long time. In the medieval times, that St. John's Cathedral on the South Hill was modeled after these beautiful Gothic cathedrals, kind of like the pictures you see behind me. Um, these medieval cathedrals, people got together like in the year 1200, you know, 800, 900 years ago, they would come together and they would, they, all these people, business leaders, government officials, craftsmen, the church leaders, tons of laborers, architects, stonemasons, they all got together and they started to build something that they would never in their lifetime see finished. That's profound to think that you could see beyond your life and think to generations to come and say, I'm going to start something in my life that is going to take lifetimes to finish. Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France, this you know, amazing, iconic cathedral, um, took 180 years to, from start to finish. Isn't that amazing? 180 years of construction. Almost burned down in a few hours, by the way. I mean, it was close to losing the whole thing in that fire a couple years ago. Now, we don't have any sense of this. Like, we think of the, the scale of construction projects like that. We don't have things like this. Well, I, I should make a correction. We do have the North-South Freeway, right? 180 years. 180 years of construction, right? Someday, our great-grandkids will ride on that thing, and it'll be good. Um, but I want you to think about this idea of building cathedrals, when you do something in your life that you will not see completed during your lifetime, but you know will benefit generations to come, you're building a cathedral. You're, you're thinking beyond yourself and you're putting something, um, you're, you're trusting that God will take this, your little contribution during your lifetime and do, do it to build something that will outlast you. I think we do that with the church. Like we start churches and we, we, we try to build things that will, that will live beyond us and reach more and more people with the gospel of Jesus. But I think the way I want you to really think about this is when we think about the next generation. We think about our kids here in this room and our, our teens here in this room and um, even future kids, that when we pass the faith on to them, we are building cathedrals. We are pouring into people and helping them build their life and their relationship with God, and we won't see how that finishes, right? We contribute, and then our life comes to an end, and we see, and they continue on after us, right? That's how, you know, it usually works, God willing, right? It's that their life continues, and we began a construction project that we will never see fully completed, but we make a contribution in their lives. And I'm so thankful for our kids here and our church's commitment to the next generation 
And kids, I'm glad you're in this room too. You guys really matter to God. Like God loves you. You're a special part of what God is doing. You're not just the future church. You're the church now. And we want you to see us worshiping. We want to worship with you. We want to see yourselves as an important, we want you to see yourselves as an important part of the church today and not just in the future. And so I want you to think about Elijah's experiences that would have died with him if he would have died underneath that tree. Your experiences and the lessons that God has taught you are not just for you. They are for you. When God encouraged you when you really needed that encouragement or you had that insight from Scripture that really affected you or you you heard that thing in a sermon that just like really stuck with you, that's for you. God intended that for you. His Holy Spirit applied that to you. But he also meant it for someone else. He also meant for you to pass that on to other people. He also meant for you to build the cathedral and to pass the faith to the next generation. For people who have not yet had their own experiences with God, So Elijah gets to have all this time mentoring Elisha, 18 years, telling him about God's faithfulness, telling him about the the widow that that he was able to care for at Zarephath and his his Carmel experience and his time on Mount Sinai with God. And those experiences were for Elijah, but they were also for Elisha. Psalm chapter 145, uh, verses 1 through 7, the psalmist talks about, this is a psalm of David, and he talks about the importance of, of, of praising God so the next generation can hear you. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Here it is. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate They speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud your righteousness. David's recognizing that God's greatness needs to be proclaimed and and told to the next generation. One generation saying God is good to the the next generation, helping them see that for themselves around you or for themselves as well. Our church really values the next generation. We have something like 220 people that call this church home, um, and they do not all come on the same Sunday. We, we, we do, they do, but we call that Easter. That's Easter. Um, but there's something like 220 people that, that this is their home church, and they, they come on, you know, maybe not all on the same Sunday except for those, those few Sundays. But our youth group, like if you look at proportion-wise youth group to kids or to, to total attendance, we have a really skewed in a good way, percentage. Like we have tons of youth, tons of kids, and I love that about our church. And we really, that's like a core value of who we are as a church is that we value the next generation. We value pouring our faith out to them and showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we had, so we had a youth event here on Wednesday night, and there's probably, if I had to guess how many people are in the room right now, I'd say 50-ish. 45 people, something like that in the room. There were 40 people at our youth event on Wednesday night. Like it was the same number of people probably in, in this room for our youth event. And we've got just great people like my wife Pam and, and her great team of youth leaders that give their lives and pour out their lives to, to serve the next generation, to help them also follow Jesus and to, to tell them what it's like to serve him. And we really, really value that. That's something that we, we hold dear to us. Um, I also want to say that our, your, you as families, parents with kids here, 
you serve a vital role in, in doing that, passing faith on to the next generation, irreplaceable role. This stuff the church could never do, you do. Through that ongoing life-on-life -life kind of experience, showing your kids what it looks like to follow Jesus in your life. One of the things that we want to do as a church is to help you uh, with that, to give you some good resources. So one of the things that we're going to be starting soon as a church is putting resources into your hands to help you have conversations, spiritual conversations with your kids at key moments. So there's going to be, there's a wall actually that's already decorated, but the resources aren't down there yet by our kids ministry check-in. And there'll be things like, hey, how to, how to talk to your kids about baptism or like how to have um, a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus, to pray with your kids to receive Christ, that, that kind of thing. And there'll be resources down there to equip you in these kind of key moments in parenting and discipling your kids. So look for that coming soon uh, downstairs. I want to brag on my parents for a little bit. They weren't here, they're not here now. They were here first service. My, my parents take this seriously, passing the baton of faith from their generation to, to the generation after mine. And every week, my mom, for years, for my kid's entire lifetime, my mom has come over and given us a day over a week, every week, so that Pam and I can do ministry together, so that Pam and I can leave the kids with her and go work at the church together. And it's our one day a week, aside from Sundays, where we get to be together at the church, you know, working together in ministry. My dad's entered his retirement years now, and so he joins, joins her on that day. And every, every Tuesday, they come over and they spend the whole day with my kids watching them so that we can come here and do things like Alpha and the other stuff that we work on here at the church. And I'm so grateful for my parents. My parents serve you by serving my, my family so that we can serve you. I mean, it's this, like, they, they serve in a really, like, it's not an upfront way. It's a quiet act of service, but they're so faithful, and I'm so grateful for them. And um, I, anyway, they're, they're not, they were here first service, but I'm so grateful for the way they contribute. But it's not just providing a safe environment or a fun environment. It's also providing a faith-filled environment for my kids. And I've seen my mom, you know, handwrite a Bible verse that she thinks would encourage one of my kids so they could put it by their bed at night if they feel scared in the dark or whatever, that they could think about that verse and that'll help encourage them. Or, you know, memorizing things or learning songs and all the things that my parents do to like just to really take that seriously, to pass faith to the next generation. It's so beautiful and I'm so grateful for it. Elisha takes up the cloak that has fallen off of Elijah as he ascended into heaven. I love that the Bible includes that detail. Elijah goes up in the whirlwind, don't need this cloak anymore, it falls off. Elisha takes the cloak and puts it upon himself, and this transfer from Elijah to Elisha has been completed. And then there's the question, because Elijah's still on the, Elisha's still on the wrong side of the Jordan, and he's got to get it back across again. And so he takes this cloak that didn't belong to him until just then, and he asked the question that the generation, the coming generations always ask, like, I've, I've seen you do that with, that with them, but will you do that with me? God, will you be faithful to me like you were faithful to Elijah? God, can I trust you like my parents trusted you? Or God, you worked in previous generations by bringing many, many people to you in revivals. Can we trust you to do that in our time? And Elijah, sorry, Elisha <laughs> takes the cloak and he he hits the water of the River Jordan and the river parts just like it did for Elisha. And then he walks through on dry ground and the sons of the prophets meet him and they say, you have the spirit of Elijah on you. And then his ministry continues and we're going to see some of the ways that God uses Elisha in the coming weeks. One interesting thing to remind you of before we close our time together today is the significance of their names, Elijah and Elisha. 
Remember, Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. El is the, is the Hebrew word for God. And then Ijah, Jah is the, is the shortened version of the, form of the word Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. So my God is Yahweh. Elisha's name means my God saves. And Elisha and Jesus have the same name. The Hebrew name of Jesus is Yeshua, which is almost the same thing as Elisha. And probably if we were all reading Hebrew, it would be the exact same Hebrew letters. That Elisha, my God saves, he, he will, his name even points us forward toward Jesus, who will one day show us exactly what this God who, who saves looks like. When we, uh, when we consider the fact that God comforts us and gives us encouragement so that we can encourage others, I think one of the great Bible passages that talks about this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to close with these words here. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 through 7. Say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a very wordy thing there, but follow the, the pattern. God comforts us. God comforted you so that you might be comforted, but also so that you would comfort other people going through what you're going through or going through similar things. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul's trying to get the same point across, that God's work in your life is for you, but it's also for you to tell to the next generation or to tell to everybody, to anybody and everybody about God's faithfulness. His promise still stands. He is, he is faithful he is good. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time together worshiping you and learning from your word. And Lord, as we um, get ready to lift up our voices one final time together before we um, leave, I pray that you would help us to meet with you. And Lord, drive these lessons home into our hearts. I thank you so much for our youth and our kids here at this church. I pray that you would help us as, as a church to lovingly pass on our faith to them and to show, us what it, show them what it looks like. Lord, may that even be a motivator for us to follow you even more closely and to have even more faith than we do and to spend more time in your word and prayer and, Lord, to trust you more so that they might see us trusting you and, Lord, that that might be an encouragement for them. And, and God, give us, give us more. Give us more of your, of your uh, just a sense of who you are and your spirit's power. Lord, work in our time as you have in the past. Please come, Lord Jesus. Send your spirit. Lord, heal, heal us. Heal the divisions in our land. Heal our, our, the troubles that we're experiencing, Lord. But do that by transforming hearts and sending your salvation across this land. Fill all the churches. Lord, give, help people to know you and to follow you and to find the hope and the peace that they're looking for so desperately in so many other places. Lord, I've, I know you can do that, and I pray that you will. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.